pain with intercourse is one of the best conditions to treat because, well, people are very motivated, number one. And number two, it, the, the outcomes are, are really strong with this, with this conservative management. Motherhood is a full-time job, except there's no clocking out. Hi, I'm Allison, doctor of physical therapy, mom of two, and women's health nerd. Join me as we dive deep into motherhood and answer the questions that everyone wants to know, but no one wants to ask. So grab a coffee, water or wine, and get comfy while we chat with some of the top women's health practitioners who support moms from fertility through empty nest to improve our mental, emotional, and physical well-being. This is the All Out Motherhood Podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm here with Dr. Melanie Sutton-Struzzi, and I think I just said that wrong. It's Dr. Melanie Struzzi-Sutton, and she is a pelvic physical therapist specializing in oncology, lymphedema, and pelvic pain. So we're going to kind of have a little bit of a broad discussion today about some different things that you might think are uncommon in the women's health realm, but are actually maybe a little more prevalent than you think. So I'm going to let Melanie introduce herself and tell us a little bit about um, what you do. Great. Thank you so much, Allison. Um, And you did get it right. It's Melanie Struzzi Sutton. So nice job. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have been a physical therapist since 94, um, back before everything transitioned to doctorate programs. So I went back and got a doctorate. I have a master's in health sciences, a board certification in women's health, um, and a specialty in pelvic health through the American Physical Therapy Association section on women's health, and I'm a certified lymphedema therapist. So I see anything and everything that happens from about the neck to the knees. Um, I see women who have breast cancer, uh, hysterectomies associated with breast cancer, um, surgical menopause that they may have if they're young, uh, infertility issues. I see people who have swelling issues either in their trunk or their legs or their abdomen associated with oftentimes cancer treatment. Um, And I see a lot of pelvic issues that are associated with pregnancy, um, postpartum, or not related to uh, the, the cycles, but just uh, unexplained abdominal pelvic pain. So that's really, um, in a nutshell, a big nutshell, um, what I do, what I love to do, and what I've done for over 10 years now. That's so awesome. And I'm sure you've seen quite a wide range of patients with you know all sorts of different things, having all these different specialties that you have, which is just amazing, your wealth of knowledge. Thank you. Yes, it's um, always very interesting. There's never a dull day in my world. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> so let's start off with some of your pelvic pain uh, topics. And what are some things you're you're seeing a lot in the women's health and pelvic pain area that, you know, maybe a lot of women aren't familiar with or just aren't aware of that can be issues or uh, problems? Okay, great. Um, so I would say that one of the primary things that is underreported and people don't necessarily know that something can be done for it, but pain with intercourse, um, pain with intravaginal penetration, 
that should not hurt. It shouldn't be uncomfortable. It should feel good. Um, if there's anything, any symptoms that don't feel good, either during or after intercourse, then that's something that we can evaluate and treat and help make better. And so many women that I've worked with that have had pain with uh, penetration did not know that there was something available for that or that it could get better. And many of them actually just thought it's normal to hurt. It's always hurt with sex. So, you know, it's kind of a, a news flash when they realize that, oh, you know, we can do something about that. Women expect as they age, I think, to have issues with their pelvic floor, either, you know, it's normal to leak a little, only when I, you know, cough or sneeze. It's normal to hurt after menopause because things just aren't the same as they used to be. And uh, I've had really exciting opportunities to help people get better in those areas, sometimes even if they that's not what they came initially for, but they realize that we can help that too. It's like icing on the cake. Oh, and that's that's such a true story right there. You know, you have so many people that come in, you know, for even just like neck pain or shoulder pain. And once you start talking to them, you realize that they do have pain with sex or um, other issues like that. And and you can address those. That's That's amazing. It really is. And and they're very highly treatable. Pain with intercourse is one of the best conditions to treat because, well, people are very motivated, number one. And number two, it, oh, sure. the, the outcomes are are really strong with this with this conservative management. Oh, that's that's great to hear, because I know a lot of people, like you said earlier, think that just, oh, this is normal. I had a baby. Of course, I'm going to have pain or this is just part of aging. It just happens or this is how it's supposed to feel. It always has felt this way. But there actually is help for that and there is treatment for it. And um, obviously, you've had quite a bit of success treating that. Yes, yes. And, you know, some of the more... Um remarkable patients that I've seen have had like pain with sex for decades. And all of a sudden they experience, you know, after the treatment that they can do this without pain. And it's, it's just really life-changing. Yeah, that would be completely life-changing for, for so many people. I mean, I think, I think a lot of women at one point in their life do experience pain with sex for whatever reason, but when it's, you know, ongoing or may, you know, happening, like you said, for so many years, that really takes a toll on your mental health, not just your physical health. Yes. And it's, it's a huge issue for couples. Um, you know, the women don't want to speak up about the pain because they feel like, you know, embarrassed by it or just don't feel comfortable saying anything and they want to go along with it to please their partner. But, you know, tolerating something is not the way that those activities are supposed to go. And then, you know, the husband doesn't want or partner um, doesn't want to hurt the spouse. Um, and so there's really just a lot of layered emotions that go along with this. It's not a simple um, it's not a simple issue. Oh, absolutely. And I know just from patients I've seen, one of one of my biggest pet peeves was having a, a postpartum woman come in and, you know, maybe maybe she was six months postpartum or maybe she was 10 years postpartum. But so many times I've heard them say, oh, well, my practitioner, my provider just told me, well, take a shot of whiskey or, oh, that's totally normal. Just relax and and it'll get better or that's just normal. It's, it's what happens. And 
I know my, I haven't always like verbally reacted, but I know the look on my face is just horrified whenever they say things like that. It just never ceases to amaze me. Right. And nobody in the history of relaxing has relaxed when someone says just relax. So um, <laughs> that, that's not, yes. that, that really doesn't cut it. I've heard that story a lot too. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's such a hard spot to be into as a provider trying to, you know, whenever they've heard that, oh, it's normal, but then you as a therapist know that it's actually not and that you can help them. Um, have you had trouble kind of relaying that message after someone's come to you saying like, oh, I've, I've had this for years, it's not going to get better, or I was told it wouldn't get better? You know, how do you handle that? Well, you know, I think that when they're aware that there is something that can be done and that, you know, we can make progress, everybody's just been really grateful about it. So I haven't um, heard anything other than, you know, positive responses for that. The The thing that I hear then is, well, why did it take me so long to get to you? You know, this could have oh, been, yeah. you know, 20 years ago or you know, however long, um, and I'm just now getting to you. And so that would be the only thing that I would say that's really difficult in those conversations is not that that they don't believe that we can make progress, but more that once they make progress, that they come back around to, I didn't have to live like that for years. I, I think it's important to get the word out about what it is that we do and what we can help with so that uh, more people can get to us as pelvic physical therapists and get their tr symptoms dealt with earlier. Then that's just a quality of life issue. Oh, absolutely. That's, yeah, that's a great point. Just getting the word out is kind of the the hardest part, <laughs> uh, which hopefully we are doing that now. Right. You have quite a few different certifications, which is kind of awesome because you can combine a lot of your knowledge together. What are, what are your most predominant like pelvic pain patients? Would you say that it's more of the pregnancy uh, postpartum or is it more of a, a menopause generation? And are there any other factors that kind of go along with that? Sure. Um, you know, I... I love seeing people who are pregnant and postpartum and they definitely have, you know, issues that we can often front end or deal with quickly. It's not the largest part of my population. I see a large caseload of people who have cancer and they either have uh, breast cancer and if it's a um, hormone driven cancer, they may also have hysterectomy along with or, or shortly following their breast cancer treatment. And so then okay. you can have someone who's, you know, in their 30s who's going through menopause essentially because of the hormonal shifts that happen after the hysterectomy. So For I sure. would say that my caseload is is a lot of uh, patients who have cancer, either breast plus or minus a hysterectomy and also endometrial cancer or other um, organ type cancers. And the the chemotherapy can be associated with peripheral neuropathy, which can affect the genitals to some degree. And it can also be radiated tissue in the area that they have had cancer. And that can impact pain with intercourse, as well as bladder and bowel dysfunction, which are the other um, sort of elephants in the room that I work with. It's typically patients have more than one issue. It can be pain and also voiding 
difficulties or leakage and either constipation or even leakage from uh, stool that kind of combines together to to be this scope of pelvic PT that that I see. The other part of the caseload that I think is worth mentioning are people who have had chronic and persistent pain for years and years and have gone from one doctor to another doctor to another doctor, and eventually um, someone refers them to myself or one of my colleagues, and they're just fed up with having so much pain for so long and not having anything effectively um, intervening for it. So I see a lot of complex pelvic pain scenarios where you know they just haven't had answers for a long time. And it's uh, very rewarding, challenging, but rewarding to work with patients in all of these scenarios. But it's not, not super straightforward. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think you you know, mentioned something there that you're talking about oncology patients and um, patients who have had hysterectomies or other um, surgical interventions for pelvic cancers or breast cancer. And a lot of times people don't really think like, oh, after these procedures, I'm going to have physical therapy or I need physical therapy. That isn't something that comes to mind when you think of those surgical interventions or those uh, diagnosis. Correct. And and oftentimes the people who get in to see me may have sought that referral. They heard about it and are like, you know, I want to have pelvic PT. We actually see this a lot in the, in the pregnant population. If they have some knowledge of pelvic physical therapy, they may be driving their referral to us. And so I think that, you know, that's one of the good things is more people are hearing about pelvic physical therapy and what we can do. The other piece of that is that we've worked hard in this area uh, to educate our physicians on getting early referrals for the cancer population and even from uro- urologists, urogynecologists, and gastroenterologists who are referring their patients to see us. That's amazing. That's that's really great. That takes a lot of work to do, a lot of legwork on your part, and that's very commendable. I'm glad you guys have reached out and and done that. Yeah, thankfully, um, you know, the, the another thing that I will tell patients if they're really happy with their outcomes is go back and tell your doctor, so they can get other people here where you are. So you know that I think that sometimes the best advertising is word of mouth. Oh, absolutely. Because if it, you know if a physician hears it from the patient, they know that it's really pretty much unsolicited and that it's actually you know fact, not just a practitioner telling a a physician or another practitioner what they can do or what they have done. You know, it's more um, real life. (laughs) Yeah, I think it makes more of an impact. Sometimes when um, when they hear it from us, they think we're just trying to drum up business, which exactly we've got plenty of business. All of the pelvic physical therapists that I know of, and there's a lot of them, have plenty of people that that need their care because we all have pelvises and pelvises can have issues. And so, you know, I I think that it just makes more of an impact when it comes from a patient. Yeah, that's great. So do you ever have pelvic patients that are coming to you maybe because they have, they actually have like nutritional issues that are causing their pelvic pain or some other wellness type issues? Have you ever seen that before? 
So yeah, that's an interesting question. I will see patients who have gastric issues associated with their complaints. They may have pain concurrently, but the their primary driver might be that they have irritable bowel syndrome or you know diarrhea and lack of control. And so diet plays a huge impact in stool consistency, which can be the difference between having difficulty either getting something out or keeping something in. And so I I see the dietary link and lifestyle associated with those complaints. Um, and I have a, a dietitian that I like to refer to for those situations. I think there's also an impact of inflammatory type foods that may impact pain. And that tends to be more individual. Elimination diets can be helpful for that. But certainly some of the things that we in our culture eat quite a bit of that are processed, (laughs) um, high in sugar, and maybe lower in nutrients can make that type of patient more symptomatic. I tend to try and give information on just some of the healthy lifestyle interventions that people can make to complement what we're doing. But if they're looking for specific nutrients or, or breakdown, there's some, there are great holistic providers in our area that, that we can get on board for that. Oh, that's great. And that's wonderful that you can, you know, cross refer and work together. I think that's a big key that is sometimes lacking with a lot of practitioners. You know, they kind of feel like they can they can handle it all. And and um, it's great whenever you can team up with people who you trust and that you know are also going to take care of your patients as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that sometimes it's it's really pretty easy from my perspective. You know, if people can switch between soda and caffeine drinks more to water and see what that does, try and get, you know, a healthy balance of fruits and vegetables in their diet. Sometimes those type of things that that those that all of us in the health professions are aware of are more information than our than our patients have. And so we can guide through those things, but if it gets to a point where, you know, they have incorporated healthy eating and hydration and sleep and exercise and they're still not really where they want to be. I think that's when calling in calling in more support is appropriate. Oh, absolutely. And I want to back up and touch on something you just said, because I know as busy women and busy moms, we tend to, you know, drink a lot of coffee and teas and sometimes sodas and even like juices and things like that. And how do you see that impacting your patients from a pelvic health perspective? Sure. Uh, Well, first of all, um, there is uh, something to think about in terms of postpartum, and that's increased hydration requirements if you're breastfeeding. So, you know, I would definitely um, encourage women to get more water than usual when they're breastfeeding. And by the time you feel thirsty, you're probably a little bit dehydrated. So, you know, that's kind of a, a good rule of thumb that as well as if you're Uh, urine is dark or has an odor to it, that might be another sign of dehydration. I am not here to separate anyone from their coffee. I am a mom too. (laughs) So we all have to function and there's no shame in this game. But I think it's important, or and I should say, not but, 
And it's also important to understand how our bodies react to what we put inside of us and to make conscious decisions. So for example, if someone like myself for, you know, I'll just use, use me. If I have over a few cups of coffee in the morning, I know I'm going to fight urges the whole rest of the day and I may not make it completely to the bathroom. And and that's a pelvic PT and I know better. Um, However, if you recognize what your symptoms are and what you respond to, then you can make those choices for yourself based on, you know, what you know might happen or might not happen. So I'm certainly not going to drink that amount of caffeine before I have to go on a flight um, or be in an airport where I don't know where, where uh, bathrooms (laughs) are, you know, you got to sort of consider the context. I do find that increased caffeine for most of my clients makes a negative impact in terms of urgency, leakage with urgency, and sometimes pain. Sometimes the pain can be driven by caffeine as well. That being said, some of my patients with constipation find that a cup of coffee or two in the morning is the key towards having good bowel <laughs> function. So you kind of yes. can weigh, weigh all of the factors and figure out what works for you. There's no one size fits all. And that's a very good point. And on that note, what are some of the most common foods and or drinks that you see that can potentially cause issues in some people? So caffeine is usually one of the one of the ones that can impact bladder negatively. <laughs> it's always the guilty p- party there. Yeah, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm raising my hand to this one. Same here. The, another one that I think bears mentioning is is uh, citrus juices. So I actually I had a client years ago, early in my pelvic PT practice, that was having urgency and leakage, and it was just really impacting her negatively. I had her do a bladder diary, and she came back, and it was all grapefruit and grapefruit juice. And I asked her about it. And she's like, yeah, I'm doing the, the grapefruit diet. And I'm like, how about we not do the grapefruit diet between now and next time when you come back and, you know, just try water instead. And her symptoms completely resolved completely. Now that's not a typical case scenario, but I think it does um, speak to the fact that irritants can be a huge factor for people. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I would say citrus, spicy, caffeine, sadly, chocolate. But again, I'm not here to separate people from their irritants. It's more just recognizing what things are and what things respond to each person. Uh, Carbonated water is another one or just carbonated drinks. And a lot of people are like, yeah, well, I'm doing these healthy waters there. They don't have any calories and, you know, and it's lemon flavored. And those uh, carbonated drinks are an irritant to the bladder, whether or not there's any caffeine in them just the carbonation itself. And then it artificial sweeteners can bother the bladder as well. So if you have one of those seltzer spritzers that is diet, so it has the artificial sweeteners along with a citrus flavoring and it's carbonated. It's kind of like a, a the new triple threat. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, like you said, everything in moderation, but knowing what you're putting in your body is is key and how it affects you. But there are so many things that we 
think of as healthier options like grapefruit juice or a seltzer water. And then you've got all these, you know, quote, diet or sugar free type alternatives that you think are a little better because they are sugar-free, but they're actually probably worse because they do have those artificial sweeteners in them. Yeah, I think the pendulum has has really um, swung too far in the low-calorie direction. And there's not as much nutrients in those things either. So filling up on water that you have maybe steeped yourself with a fruit in it is probably going to be a whole lot better and less expensive than you know, some of the things that are more popular to to drink right now. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Okay, switch switching gears a little bit here. Let's talk a little bit about your lymphedema experience because that's not something that people usually associate with pelvic issues. Um, I it's definitely associated with like breast cancer and post mastectomy and things like that, but really you know, it's not well known to most people that it can occur in the pelvic area. And I don't think they realize that it can happen on a smaller scale, but still cause problems. Sure. So I I think that most people are familiar with lymphedema from a breast cancer perspective. It's also common after having a abdominal um, cancer type surgery and intervention. So like I had mentioned before, uh, endometrial cancer, ovarian cancer, cervical cancer, any of those issues, if lymph nodes are removed in the surgery, and then if radiation is done to the tissue in that area, there could be swelling in and around the abdomen, the genitals, and down into the legs. So that's the first thing to note is that, you know, cancers that are elsewhere than breast can be associated with lymphedema. The other thing, couple of things that I think are pertinent to talk about are that during pregnancy, people may have a volume over overload for what their lymphatic system can handle. And sometimes lymphatic problems can show up in one or both legs during pregnancy and may or may not go away following the birth of the child, depending on whether or not this is quote unquote, normal system that's overloaded with increased capacity during pregnancy, or whether there might be an underlying lymphadenopathy or problem with the lymph system that shows up because pregnancy brings in extra fluid. So, you know, that that's kind of the thing that I help to sort out if I have someone with leg swelling. And another area that can become swollen and symptomatic with pregnancy is the genital tissue. So people may say that they have, you know, this feeling of fullness or heaviness in their genitals or even increased size that they're aware of. And that can be associated with pelvic congestion with pregnancy and sometimes without pregnancy, where people will come with symptoms of fullness, heaviness. They may even have a a varicose vein in their vulvar tissue, which can be very uncomfortable. So of course we would, as a pelvic therapist, look for, you know, so what what's shifting? Um, is it organs sort of changing where their shape is and causing fullness? Or is there um, a pelvic floor dysfunction that may be contributing to symptoms? Or if there's just extra fluid in the area and that's what we need to deal with. So um, we're looking sort of at all of the all of the presenting factors and trying to figure out 
what the cause is and then what we can do about it. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I, with my second, uh, with my son, I actually did have a vulvar varicosity and good God, those are painful. And uh, yeah, it was something I had never experienced before. I really don't want to experience again, that's for sure. But mine was mainly due to a pelvic floor dysfunction and then uh, just a lot of fluid volume. He was a bigger baby. It was a different pregnancy. There was a lot of stress going on and it just was not fun. But can you talk a little bit about the, um, there is a support garment that you can get for those. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I actually did not get one for mine because I was towards the end of my pregnancy when mine developed and I wasn't really up on my feet a whole lot. And looking back, I probably should have just gotten it, but I didn't. So, <laughs> um, and again, you know, the, I'm a pelvic PT and we know better, but you know. <laughs> sure. Um, so with swelling, one of the, you know, main treatment interventions is to kind of buffer that with an extra external pressure um, that keeps the tissue from expanding more. And there's a there's a product, it's called the, I think it's the V strap. Um, strap may not be the right word, but it's, it's a V um, in the name. And it's a V support, I think is what it's called. The way that it works is that there's a perennial part down supporting your, uh, your vulvar tissue, and then it comes up and around the hips. It doesn't go around the belly um, because of, you know, advancing abdominal size during pregnancy. I sure. I haven't seen a whole lot of cases of people who have chosen to keep using that, even if they've tried it. So I think it's really individual what works for each person, but that would be the go-to for compression. But the other thing that I like to think about is maybe just using something that's over the counter, like a spandexy type short, and then just pulling that up tight in between the legs so that you get that pressure where you need it. And so they do have those in, you know, just workout sections of wherever you shop and they have maternity versions as well that can kind of advance with your size, but a boy short type compression garment that's spandexy over the counter would be something that I have found people have more success with, particularly if they're not liking the the V support. Oh, that's, that's good to hear then. And that's interesting too. I wasn't sure, you know, how effective those were versus the V support since I'd never tried the V support myself. Yeah. I think it's just trial and error and seeing what works for each person. Absolutely. Also, when you were talking about pregnancy and the inflammation, what are some of the signs that you would tell a pregnant woman like, okay, you know, you're, most women have swelling in their feet when they're pregnant, you know, to some degree, but what's kind of the point where you say, okay, this is more than there should be? Um, you mean what would distinguish and characterize someone who has something underlying going on rather than just regular pregnancy swelling? Yes. Okay. What what might be a, um, you know, kind of a, and maybe, maybe they don't even have something going on for sure, but just for them to know themselves like, okay, this is more than I should have. I need to have this checked. Sure. So yes, there's usually a 20 to 30 on average pound weight gain during a pregnancy. 
And some of that is fluid. We can't attribute all of it to the growing baby. That would be nice. <laughs> but, but what I would say is that the swelling that happens during the day should get better overnight. And then you start the day over again. You stand up, you look down, you can see your feet. Things are, or someone else can see your feet. And things are looking, you know, more normal. And then throughout the course of the day, later in the day, you're feeling more swelling. Um, so some of the the signs that it might be more than that, or that you might want to have it checked out and see if anything can be done um, to help make things better would be if you can't get into your shoes um, or if one leg is more swollen than the other. I think that's probably the biggest thing. The biggest takeaway is an asymmetry in the swelling. Um, and then certainly any swelling that persists after pregnancy um, you know, several weeks after pregnancy, when most of that fluid has already worked itself out and you've kind of hit your, hit your postpartum stride a little bit, if you're still having significant swelling or significant swelling on just one side, then I would think that that would be something you'd probably want to let your doctor know about and potentially see a lymphedema therapist for that. Gotcha. Okay. And Again, switching gears a little bit, but for your non-oncology patients, what are some of the, I don't want to say more rare, but more uncommonly heard of pelvic issues that you see in patients that are, you know, more than two years postpartum, so not necessarily like immediately after birth? Sure. Okay. So um, a couple of the things would be, and, and the doctors are usually making this definitive diagnosis. But so I'm going to say that with a word of, you know, I don't diagnose these, but I see them. And that would be one of them would be prolapse. And so, you know, that's when an organ is falling short, uh, a little bit further down than it would normally sit for you. Um, And that can be bladder, it can be uterus or vaginal vault or rectum that falls into the vaginal canal a little bit. And it, and that can be symptomatic in the way of feeling pressure or fullness or even some back pain issues. So those are things that, you know, certainly show up sometimes later on and we get referrals to help deal with that. Now, that being said, sometimes the the prolapses are more longstanding than the symptoms of the prolapse because people, until they know about it, may not realize that that's what's going on. And so I think it's helpful to recognize that, you know, if you or your doctor is seeing like a bulge or feeling like a prolapsing, it doesn't mean that it's something acutely wrong. Chances are good that you may have had that going on um, at a lower level, lower threshold than your awareness for a bit longer. But there are things that we can do as pelvic physical therapists to help you maintain as much structural support as possible, even, even in having a prolapse. It depends on the degree of the prolapse. Gotcha. So there is hope no matter how far out you are. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And another couple issues that that are, I think, worth mentioning as well would be a diastasis um, where there's abdominal separation at the center of the belly, around the belly button usually. And then pelvic girdle pain, pain in the pubic symphysis in the front, 
pain in the low back area. Those issues can also persist much longer than the pregnancy and early postpartum period. What would you say the percent, well, and maybe you don't even have like a, you know, a a set percentage number, but how often do you see patients that come in, say for a back pain or shoulder pain or something completely unrelated? And the further you dive into their history, you find that they actually have some sort of pelvic floor dysfunction, whether they knew about it or not. Okay. So this is an interesting question. And largely because I only see pelvic and oncology patients. Ah, gotcha. But have have sort of uh, coached and trained colleagues to pick up on these issues. So we get a lot of cross referrals because the other physical therapists in the practice who are seeing people that come in with back pain or shoulder pain or, or, you know, other more commonly orthopedic issues, they're screening them for those um, pelvic complaints and saying, you know, do you have any issues with leakage? Do you have any issues with pain in the pelvis? Are you having any issues with control or pain uh, in the pelvic area? And then they will get them scheduled to see us. So I really can't speak to the um, incidence of that happening since I'm kind of the the person that that sees them after it's already been identified. (laughs) (laughs) What I will say is that these issues are incredibly common. So I believe the stats are one in three for bladder dysfunction, leakage, one in four or five for pelvic pain. And I want to say that the the pelvic pain is probably underreported because once we start diving in to people who come with referrals for bladder control, many of them have pelvic pain too. They just didn't realize that that was something we could address. So I'm a little skeptical on the one in four, one in five incidents of pelvic pain. I think it's higher. Yeah, I would definitely agree to that. And also I've seen patients who kind of have pelvic pain, but they actually think it's their hip or they think it's their back or they think it's something else going on. So they don't really attribute it to being actual pelvic pain. Right. You know, yeah, or or they may think it's like IBS or another you know issue like that. Yeah, and the you know IBS is often concurrent with pelvic floor dysfunction. So, mm-hmm. um, I I was thinking about something as you said that, and that oh I lost it. It'll come back to me. <laughs> <laughs> Hazard of the job and motherhood. Yes. <laughs> Okay, let's uh, let's chat a little bit about like IBS is such a prevalent issue right now, especially in females. And what exactly do you do for that as a pelvic PT? Okay, so yes, it's very it's it's very common. It's more common in women than men. So it's a functional bowel disorder, which means that people uh, go through testing that shows that everything looks fine, but they don't feel fine. And so, or it doesn't work well, regardless of uh, uh, net medical workup. And so what we are looking at as a pelvic physical therapist, and what I'm looking at is what are the symptoms that are associated with that, that we might be able to help impact. So for some people, it's IBS with constipation. And so they have difficulty with executing bowel movements. Some people, it might be IBS with diarrhea. So they have difficulty 
um, making it to the bathroom without having accidents. And so you're looking at, well, what's the symptom? And then what do we need to do or what can we do to help with that? And so it's, uh, I think, looking at the pelvic muscle function and the ability to um, engage the pelvic muscles the way you need to with both holding back and also allowing passage for stool. And so we're looking at that piece of it. Also keeping in mind that stool consistency plays a factor. So communicating with the physicians about, you know, what they are okay with the patient taking from an over-the-counter perspective if dietary modifications aren't making enough of a difference to get the stool consistency where it needs to be, where it's easy enough to hold back and also to get out. So I think it's both things. It's both pelvic floor dysfunction, if there is any stool consistency management, and then a lot of education because oftentimes IBS has a main complaint of pain. And there is a frustration for many patients that they feel these symptoms and they don't understand why they feel these symptoms and the doctor saying there's nothing really wrong or nothing more that they can do. And so I think that there's a lot of education on what's really going on with that process and which things that they can impact or not impact based on education and information that that we have to be able to help improve quality of life. Yeah, that that makes complete sense. And it that's just something that you don't you don't hear a lot about. You know, you don't hear a lot about going to physical therapy because you have IBS or, you know, GI type issues. And and it's really nice to to chat about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think constipation might be um the number one reason for doctor's visits. I, I may have that wrong, but it's pretty high up there. I'd say it's in the top three for primary care visits because that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. yeah, Because, you know, people like it when their bathroom functions work well. Bathrooms (laughs) are very important places to have things functioning as best as possible. Yep. Bathroom and bedroom. Definitely. Going a little further into that, how much do you see stress and anxiety playing a role in um, your patients with like IBS, bowel and bladder issues, but also just pelvic pain in general? It's huge. Um, Stress negatively impacts every body system. And there are physiological changes that happen with that fight or flight mechanism within all of the organs of the body. So we think about, yeah, if you're fighty and flighty, you got stress going on, your heart rate's going to increase, your blood pressure's going to increase. But not only that, but your activity in your bladder increases, the activity in your bowel increases. So there's a reason that we all need to go to the bathroom more when we are late or when we're about to public speak, or if there's a test that's, that's going to happen. Some people may have more constipation than the other. Whichever way your gut leans, it's likely to be exacerbated by stress. There was a book that I read years ago by the International uh, IF. FGD organization, um, and I'm not remembering all of those letters at the at this moment. But um, it was called "Some People Take Things to Heart, and Other People Take Them to Their Belly," and it was a remarkable book talking about how IBS manifests in central nervous system um, upregulation, and and what I mean by that is that 
how we are within our whole body, our nervous system, affects how your gut is. And so it is helpful to recognize that because there's a lot of room for improvement when you know that that's part of the process. So even if your gut or your bladder are bothering you from an urgency standpoint and lack of control, this is something you can take control of. You may not be able to to take control of all the factors in your life, but you can start to learn how to take control of how they affect you and be able to start to improve your symptoms once you're aware of that link. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, just speaking from experience, I'm definitely a person who's always have that, you know, quote, nervous stomach, the anxiety and stress driven issues. And I remember when I was younger and first started driving in high school and, you know, I would have a, a, a police car with lights on come up behind me and they weren't even pulling me over, but I didn't know that yet. And immediately my stomach would just be in knots and I felt like, okay, I need to find a bathroom now. And so down-regulating that over the years has been, uh, you know, an issue. And and I, I have worked a lot on that, but, you know, testing in school, especially when we had um, oral exams in grad school, that was horrible. I would be sick the morning of it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, once it was over, I was okay. But (laughs) it was just the buildup to it and that stress and anxiety just, oh my gosh, it can be really just uh, debilitating. And I can't imagine if it was even worse than what I had because mine was pretty, you know, incremental and sporadic for the most part. But for someone who lives with that every day, like that, that can really take a toll on your whole system. Yeah, definitely can. And they, uh, the term second brain has been associated with the gut because there are uh, so many nerve endings there and they communicate with the brain through the vagus nerve. So, um, you know, there, there's a lot of information that's traveling from one end of that spectrum to the other between gut and brain. The gut brain axis is another term that people use for that. And, mm-hmm. you know, it just helps to be aware that that's going on. But, you know, butterflies in your stomach or a gut feeling, those those things are real. Um, we now have more evidence about the physiology that relates those two organs to each other. Yes. And I, I love the term, um, you know, your, your stomach as your second brain, because that it's just, it makes so much sense whenever you start to really dive into that topic. And that's probably a topic for another episode, but, <laughs> but it's just, it's amazing when you really start to look at the physiology behind it all and put together some things that you yourself or your patients or, you know, family members, people you know have experienced and you think like, oh, this makes so much more sense now. And these are actually some things I can do for it instead of just jumping to, you know, straight into medication or straight into, well, it can't, it can't be fixed or, you know, other, other things that aren't as helpful. Yes, I'd agree. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. So on that note, is there anything else you would like to add while I've got you today? Otherwise, I think I'm all out of questions. <laughs> um, I would just say that, you know, pelvic PT has a lot to offer for anybody who's having issues across the spectrum of pelvic um, complaints. So, you know, getting things out, keeping things in, having 
pain with things that are not supposed to be painful and recognizing that you may be able to get some help and better quality of life and if you can get a tr- give it a try and get a referral um, from your physician. It's not required because of direct access, but many of us require it because we want to know that there's a physician who's on board that we can contact if need be from a medical perspective. Sure. But just to know that there's always hope, that things can get better. They don't have to be um, where they are now ongoing. If you can connect with somebody to help you through the process, that there's always hope in things being better than they are right now. Absolutely. And I think that is a perfect note to end on, that things can be better and that there's always hope for, you know, whatever you're going through. And sometimes the solutions are not in the traditional places that you would think to look or that you've been told to look. Yeah, correct. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on today. And I really appreciate you being a guest and chatting with you. It's been really nice getting to know you. Thank you. I've enjoyed it as well, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for joining me on the All Out Motherhood podcast. Want more? Head over to alloutmotherhood.com for show notes, links, and discounts from today's episode. And while you're there, be sure to join the All Out Motherhood Collective Facebook community, where you'll find even more support to get you to that positive test and through all the rest of your motherhood journey. See you next time.